Well, I, I think that some of the greatest lessons in life are worthy of repetition. And uh, for that reason, as we turn to 2 John this week and 3 John next week, I'm so glad because we're going to be receiving repetition of the teaching that John gave to us throughout the book of 1 John. If you want to think about these three brief letters, 1 John was really more of an essay or a teaching that John put in written form that was meant to be a circular that went throughout the region that he was in pastoral and apostolic relationship with. Second John is a letter that seems to have been written not to all of the churches in that region as a circular, but more of a traditional letter to one specific church in that region. And then next week, in 3 John, again, it will be a traditional letter with a greeting and a close, but to an individual person that John wants to minister and to speak to. But in 1 John, we already got the meat of what these second and third letters are going to be about. In 1 John, and I'll just remind you of this because I'm, you know, Christmas time, New Year's, we might have forgotten a little bit, but 1 John was all about, number one, making sure that we're a people who believe in the biblical Jesus, amen? Number two, that we're a people who love one another. And number three, that we're a people who obey God and his commandments over our lives. And in 2 and 3 John, John is going to reiterate those exhortations. First, to a local church, and secondly, to a specific individual in one of those local churches. So for us, what we're going to receive this week and next is a reinforcement in the themes that John gave to us from September on into December of last year. We're going to continue to hear about these great themes. They're going to come home uh, within our hearts, and they are lessons that are worthy of us receiving, so let's get into it, starting in verse 1 through 3, where John gives us his greeting. He says in verse 1, "...the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Now, if you were to go back to the beginning of 1 John, what you discover is that that was an atypical, abnormal kind of letter. Because in the first few verses of 1 John, John doesn't say who he is. It's not a traditional Greek letter greeting. But here, he gets back to writing a normal letter. And he calls himself, to start this letter, the elder. That, that indicates that John was older than many of them, that he had a position, a pastoral responsibility in their lives. It was a kind of relationship that they had with this apostle. He was an elder to that church. But you also notice how he refers to them. He doesn't talk about them as saints in a particular city or town. He instead, in verse 1, calls them the elect lady and her children whom he loves in truth. Now, this has led to a lot of speculation about who John is writing to. And there are actually plenty of people out there that think that John is actually writing to a specific woman that is inside one of these churches 
under his care and in his jurisdiction. And that he calls her at this moment an elect lady. And it's just his kind of formal or even maybe informal way of speaking in a loving kind of term towards her. But when you read through 2 John, and as we go through this today, you'll notice that there are lots of exhortations that are not written to one person, but are written to a group. So the more standard line of interpretation is that John is not writing to a singular woman in a church, though he could have easily done that, but that who he's writing to is the church at large and that he refers to the whole church as the elect lady and then as they preach the gospel, children that they had born spiritually because they had received the message of the gospel. So the question that we should ask is, why would John want to refer to a group of believers as a lady? or as the elect lady? Why would he use the feminine to talk to a male and female audience that comprised a local church? Well, in the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, God's people are continually thought of as God's bride. His people are referred to and thought of as his bride, a female group. And this is repeated not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Places like Ephesians 5, verse 25, highlight the brideness of the church by telling us that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the idea there is that the church is Jesus' bride and that husbands are to emulate Jesus in the way that they lay down their lives for their bride. So a little bonus cross-reference for every husband that's here today. Get busy sacrificing, laying down your life for your bride. In another place, Paul said it like this, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, he said to the Corinthian church, I'm jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. So this is why John spoke of them as female or as the elect lady. He's thinking of them as God's people, the bride of Christ. Now before we move on into the meat of the letter, we should just let this introduction settle into our hearts. You know, if if God looks at his people and he sees a bride for himself, then I think we need to at times be careful about our own perspective and feelings about the body of Christ or about the church. I know for me there have been times where I've either heard someone else or myself have been tempted to think or speak disparaging words about the overall body of Christ, about the church. But it's helpful in times like that to remember and to think about God's perspective towards his people. They obviously can be filled with error, they can make mistakes, but God looks at his people, his true people, as his bride. This should help us in our relationship with each other. In fact, John's big exhortation throughout all his letters is that we should love one another. Perhaps we're helped by that by thinking that if Jesus loves the church as his bride, then so should we, regardless of imperfections. Okay, but John goes on in verse 4 and begins to give us the meat of his letter. He's given us some introductory comments. He talked a lot about the truth in the first few verses, uh, and he talks a lot about the truth in all of his writings, 37 times. In John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John mentions the truth, and he continues that theme in verse 4. He says, I rejoiced greatly 
to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now here John is basically going to tell us three things that bring him great joy or that he wanted to see in the local church. And here's a big hint. We've already seen the three things in the book of 1 John. Like I mentioned, he wants to see them walking in the truth, love, and obedience to the Lord. But here he starts with the truth. He says, I greatly rejoice to find some of your children walking in the truth. If Paul were writing this letter, he might have said, I rejoice, Galatians 2 verse 14, to see some of you walking in step with the truth of the gospel. So John celebrated the fact that some people in these churches or in this particular church were applying the truth in their lives. They were walking in the truth of God's word. And he rejoiced over it. But as he rejoices over it, isn't there a little bit of a sad implication that's possible from what John says? I mean, there he is saying, I rejoice that some of you are walking in the truth. What's the implication? The implication is that some of them were not walking in the truth. I think that what John is saying is that some of the believers in the church that he ministered to, though they had believed in Jesus, though they were perhaps forgiven of their sins, though Jesus had perhaps come into their lives in the midst of chaos and brokenness, chaos and brokenness remained their practical experience because some of them were not walking in the truth. They were not bringing to bear the principles of God's word into their daily lives and experience. You know, the truth is, is that we live under what's called the new covenant as Christians. The new covenant is beautiful because what it teaches is that God wants to change us from the inside out. He wants to transform us. He wants to, to, to develop true and lasting transformation and change within us. He wants to write his word upon the law of our own hearts. But a lot of times the way Christians in modern times will think about that is they'll think, okay, that's great. Why doesn't God then just snap his fingers and create change within my life? So there's an outburst of anger or wrath in my life. And I go to God immediately after it's over and I say, God, I don't like to have that there. I wish that you would change that. Please just take that out of my life. And then we move on our merry way. Or we struggle with some form of lust and we give in. And then say, Lord, I don't like that that was in my life. Please just remove that. Take that away from me. Or we hear that we're to be loving towards one another, and we think, well, that sounds impossible. And so we go to the Lord. Lord, would you just snap your God fingers and make me into a loving person? But all the while, the Lord is standing by saying, look, I've prescribed a way for you to approach me. I want to change you, I want to transform you, but you must be part of that process. I've said to you that as you spend time with me in my word, as you open yourself to the truth of scripture, as you spend time in prayer, as you serve or are generous, that I would in that moment meet you and my transforming power would be available in your life. And so many have walked that path before They've experienced that in stepping out in the God-prescribed lanes that Scripture gives to them, God's power, and that he changes them and transforms them. But too often, we wait. And rather than walking in the truth, rather than living out the truth of Scripture, we just wait for some kind of 
snap of God's finger to occur. But John rejoiced. There were some in that church that were walking in the truth. But secondly, in verse 5, there's another thing that John wanted to see within that church. He says in verse 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Okay, I already told you that the exhortations in this letter, they're not new. If you've studied 1 John, you've already seen all of them. And he reiterates one of them here. He says, look, here's the command that we have from the Lord. It's not even a new command. It was new when Jesus brought it because he brought it in a fresh way. That's why he said in John 13, verse 34, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love each other. As I've loved you, you should love each other. But John is writing decades after Jesus came. So now for the church, it's not a new commandment. It's been around from the very beginning of the proclamation of the gospel. And the commandment is to love each other. By the way, doesn't that just fly in the face of how we so often feel about love? We think of love as something that sort of takes us over, that kind of just comes upon us. Like, man, all of a sudden now I love you or I care about you. But John here looks at this church and he says, look, I have a command for you. I'm commanding you, imploring you to love one another. It should help redefine what love actually is. It's an action, something that we enter into, something that we choose. Now, if anybody is in my shoes, okay, because what, what we've done is the last three months, we've actually gone verse by verse slowly. I think it took 14 weeks to get through 1 John. So a billion times in 1 John, John said we should love one another. And I had to get like creative week after week to figure out how to say love one another in a different way than I said it the week before. And each week I would ask different questions like, okay, what's my angle going to be this week? Maybe this week what I'll do is I'll highlight stories of people in our church who have loved each other. And I'll tell those stories as like an example or another tactic would be to give practical exhortations on suggestions on how to love each other. You know, get in a life group, serve each other, you know, give to people, you know, things like that. Or maybe an approach would be to go back to the original love at the cross of Christ and to declare it afresh and say, because he loved us, we also should love each other. But man, by the time you get to Second John, the expositor or the pastor is sitting there going, what can I say about loving one another that I haven't already said? I mean, I've been saying it in every angle that I can possibly conceive of. I've been pulling quotes from other authors and other passages of Scripture, giving biblical examples. It's like at this point, I just don't know what to say about loving one another. So in my mind, the way forward is to take the angle that John took. You see, the reality is he probably wrote 1 John at the same time that he wrote 2 John and 3 John. So this church had already read his doctrinal treatise on loving one another. But he's taking now a moment to directly speak to them and say, look, that message that you taught, that, that I taught you, that you, were, that you learned, I want you now to apply it in your daily life and experience. You see, this is how it so often is for human beings. We hear a teaching, we hear a great truth, and we think that is powerful, that is so good, that is wonderful for other people. 
You know, I got to get a copy of that teaching and I'm going to give it to this person or that person because they need to hear this. But here's what John is saying. He looks at this church and he says, you need to hear this. You need to love one another. Look, the reality is, is that there's no pastor, there's no leader on earth that can make a group of people love each other. It's just impossible. I pray that we would love each other. I, try, I want to model more and more as my life ticks by what it looks like to love each other. Uh, but the reality is we all individually have a specific choice to make. Will I be a person who spends part of my life, a major portion of my life, loving my brothers and sisters in Christ? And I want to encourage you with that this morning to really make sure that this is a pursuit in your heart, a pursuit in your life. As I was preparing this this week and thinking about this exhortation, there was a group in our church that really stood out in my mind's eye. And it was those who are in our fellowship who are single or unmarried, who are doing their singleness, their unmarried life, as unto the glory of God. I think we'd all agree that there are a billion ways to get singleness wrong in this world, right? But we have the honor and the privilege as a church family of having many people who are unmarried who are doing it really well. And one of the things that to me has been so exemplary about many of them is that they have taken seriously the commission to make the church their spiritual family. They've made it a primary community that they are part of. And for them, church is not like their gym or you know, some other network that they have a loose affiliation with, but it's a group that they have really given their lives to. And when I see that, it just stands out as being so exemplary to me and also so healthy to me. And I've seen a lot of people who have taken on family and used that almost as an excuse to pull away, and it's very unwise to do so. Because the reality is your children will not always be in your home. And I've seen many people who once their kids are gone, they don't know how to relate to the body of Christ anymore because they checked out and made their home their church for so many years. So it's important for us to continue to pursue our brothers and sisters in Christ because we need one another. And if in our hearts we say to ourselves, well, I don't really need other people, first of all, would you be willing to involve yourself with others if they needed you. But secondly, it's just not true to say that we don't need other people. In fact, I think you could build a case that one teaching about biblical marriage is that marriage is meant to teach you how to be a person who knows how to give yourself away to others. You know how to open yourself to others. And you know how to live in community with somebody else, including your brother or sister in Christ Jesus. So maybe after hearing an exhortation like that, you say to yourself, well, Nate, I mean, this sounds great and everything, but people in the church are weird sometimes, and I don't really want to be with people in the church. But here's the thing that I've found. People that are by themselves are weirder. <laughs> so we might as well just all be weird together in this thing called the church. All right, let's look at John's last big exhortation in verse 6 in this first section of the letter. He says, verse 6, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So he's told us about walking in the truth. 
He's told us about loving one another, and now he's told us about obedience, walking according to God's commandments. And when he says this, he means love, that we're to love because he told us, God has told us to love, but also all of God's commandments, which, you know, anything God asks us to do, it is, it's a loving thing for us to do for not only God, but also for other people. So John is basically saying, I want you to live, adhere to, generally follow the commands of God's word. And when John says it like this, I'll just highlight this afresh for you. He talks about love for others and love for God and obedience to God in a very spiraling way through all his letters. It's like they're always blended together. There's a reciprocal relationship in John's mind between obedience to God and love for God. Uh, or love for each other and obedience to God. It, it all blends together. For John, they work together, and you can't really have one without the other. And I, the reason I bring that up to us is because I think in our modern times, uh, a lot of believers consider love and obedience as independent of each other. That I can be someone who loves God deeply, but also who is living in disobedience to God. But the reality, according to Scripture, is that you know, the, the apostolic writers couldn't imagine that kind of life. For them, they blended together. To love God meant that you would, in general, at the very least, be walking in the light and pursue obedience to the Lord. So though I understand what we mean when we say something like, you know, so-and-so, they're just struggling right now, they're living in rebellion against the Lord, but I know in their heart of hearts they really love the Lord. I understand what we're saying with something like that. We've seen a glimpse of what they could be when they're living in allegiance to the Lord. John really doesn't think of things that way. He thinks if you are loving God, you're going to be uh, at least desiring to walk in obedience to him. There will be some repentance, a change of lifestyle that comes. All right, so that's the beginning of John's letter. But let's look at his warning that he gives in the second half of the letter. It's really the second and final point that he makes in this short little epistle. He says in verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Okay, now in, in John's first letter, in 1 John, he had alluded to deceivers who had gone out from the church. They'd been part of the church at one point, but they'd gone out of the church. He said it like this in 1 John 2, 19. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. It was John's way of saying, not that these people you know, went and looked for a different church to go to or something like that, but that they had left uh, basic Christian doctrine and had gone out from the apostolic group and were teaching a different message entirely. That's why he refers in verse 7 to them not confessing the coming of Jesus in the flesh. There was something about what they taught about Jesus' identity that was completely and totally wrong. So John called them deceivers in verse 7, an antichrist. But notice how the whole thing begins in verse 7. It begins with the word for. For. Why does John say it that way? Well, double back to the section that we just went through. He said we should walk in the truth, we should love each other, we should obey God's commandments. For, verse 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. 
In other words, I think John is saying this. One of the best protections against error in your own life is to be part of a vibrant Christian community. It actually protects you from disobedience to the Lord or from being swayed by false doctrine. You see, the reality is if you're all by yourself and you think up some crazy doctrine that is contrary to God's word and you have no one in your life to give you any biblical pushback or correction, then you just might go there. Or if you're all by yourself and you're struggling with temptation, oh man, the human mind is so good at justifying things that are so clearly unbiblical and unrighteous for us to practice. But when you're in a community, you receive the encouragement you need. Yo, you don't want to go there. You don't want to do that. And it helps give you pause so that you can remain walking in the light. So John seems to say, look, here's the reason why we need to stick together because all this craziness is out there and we'll be swallowed alive by the false ideas the world is swimming in if we don't stick together. So John said in verse 8, watch yourself. And in saying it, he says, I'm nervous. I I don't want you to lose what you've worked for, verse 8. And his desire for them and for us was to to win a full reward. What does that mean when John says, "I, I don't want you to lose your full reward? Well, I think one answer to the question is, from what we know of Scripture, he must not be speaking of losing salvation. Salvation is not a reward. Salvation is a gift that we receive from the work of Jesus Christ and through simple faith in him. But John did believe with all of the apostles that if we live a kingdom life here on earth, that there are eternal rewards that the Lord will grant to us as his people. And he didn't want them to miss out on those blessings. So he knew that doctrinal distraction could deter the church from true service in God's kingdom. So he said, look, I want you to be aware so that you don't lose that which you've worked for. But then he goes on in verse 9. Let's read it together. He said, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. All right, there's a phrase there in verse 9 that I want you to see. Look at it with me. It's at the very beginning of the verse. He says, everyone who goes on ahead. You see that there in your Bible? That phrase, more than likely, was the phrase that the false teachers were using to describe themselves. What they were saying was, look, John's cool, the apostles, cool, they said things about Jesus. That's a great start, but we are going on ahead from what they gave to us. We've learned deeper things about Jesus, truer things about Jesus. They had an idea, but we know the full thing. We have full knowledge, and we have gone on ahead into it. You guys follow me? So John is kind of ribbing them a little bit when he says, everyone who goes on ahead and doesn't have or doesn't abide in the teachings of Christ. What the Bible says about Jesus, his identity as the Son of God and God the Son, he says those people do not have God. But when you abide in the teaching, you have both the Father and the Son. John had taught us this kind of thing in 1 John. And this is a very black and white statement, isn't it? 
There's not a lot of gray area. John is announcing that without Jesus, somebody doesn't have God. And in a world that wants to highlight pluralism and wants to believe that you know you have your own personal truth, this is a shocking statement because it's so plain and simple and black and white. His way of thinking is alien in our modern world. We, people want to claim that we all are worshiping the same God but with different names, or that all roads lead to God. But John is telling us that, look, no, that's not true. Without Jesus, you don't have God. Or as we said it when we went through 1 John chapter 2, no son, no father, but if you know the son, you know the father. Jesus is the way for us to know God. He goes on then to say in verse 10 and 11, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Okay, these are really strong words from John. And I think we need to take a minute to understand them because I think they can be grossly misapplied in our lives. But let's recap what he said. Verse 10, if anyone doesn't bring this teaching about Jesus, then they should not be received into our homes or given any greeting. And then in verse 11, if you greet a person like this, it means that you are taking part in their wicked works. All right, so to a modern reader, we could read that and come away with the conclusion, if we didn't think about this for a second, that what John means is that we should, ha- we should never have a non-believer in our home, and never even interact with someone who doesn't believe the right things about Jesus. But that's not at all what John is addressing. There's no way that someone like John, who had spent three years with Jesus, would come to that conclusion. You know, Jesus, who lived and spent time with tax collectors and sinners, there's no way John would, at the end of Jesus' life, go, yeah, that's totally what Jesus meant. We should never, if somebody doesn't believe the right thing, we shouldn't even talk to them. You can't even say hi. No greeting, lest you take part in their wicked works. We can't make John out to say something ridiculous. That's not what he's saying. So let's think about this for a second. First of all, when John writes these letters, He's not writing about, listen to me now, every known error that exists. He's writing about particular errors, specifically the error of twisting Jesus' identity to be something that biblically it's not. And he's not talking about just false views about Jesus, but false views about Jesus which came from people who said they were Christians. So specifically, John was dealing with people who claimed to be Christian, presented themselves as Christian, but were denying things like Jesus' incarnation, deity, sacrifice on the cross, bodily resurrection, etc. So what you have here isn't just all error, but error masquerading as Christian. But also, John is not thinking of everyone who's ever believed such errors. But he's thinking about people who are leading the charge in propagating those errors, teaching those errors. So in his mind, John wanted to combat the secessionists who were teaching all this stuff, but all the people who believed them, who were getting decimated by their teaching, John would have had them in his home, he would have loved them, he would have tried to 
nurse them back to the truth. But he wanted the church to have nothing to do with those false teachers. But he would have helped people who'd listen to their false teaching. But, but third, John is not talking about mere errors on secondary issues coming from otherwise orthodox leaders. No, he's talking about error of the most grievous kind where the gospel itself is at stake. You see, the church is, it's interesting, if you look at church history at all, modern and ancient, we're really good at uh, getting into big fights about secondary uh, matters. And we've had long stretches where we've like forgot the gospel itself. We should have been fighting for that, but we were fighting over secondary matters. Somebody gave me a paper recently that I read. It was a brilliant piece of work, but it, it was a detail or a recounting of the last 100 years and 21 secondary issues that had, over the last 100 years, caused great division within the Presbyterian denomination. They weren't gospel matters. They weren't primary matters. They were all secondary issues that had at times been uh, very violently uh, you know, fought over within the Presbyterian church. And it just made me chuckle because uh, they are not alone. It seems that every movement of God devolves into disputes over that which should be held with an open hand. And John's not talking about that. He's talking about a primary issue, misidentifying who Jesus is. And finally, in looking at what John said in verse 11, the, the possibility is that John actually isn't even talking about your home or my home in the first place. There are a lot of interpreters who think that John is referring not to your house, but the house of God. In other words, the church gathering collectively. And to give a greeting to a false teacher would be tantamount to bringing them up and sharing the pulpit with them and saying, look, share what you'd like to share with the body of Christ. And John saying is, saying, is saying that can't be done. They can't be given an official greeting, a customary welcome, no missionary support because they are in error about Jesus. And this was important for them because the gospel was just gaining ground throughout the world at that time. So they needed some instructions on what kinds of missionaries they should support and relaunch out into the world that they were living in. So let's think about this for a second and just ask the question, how can we apply this thing into our own lives uh, today? I think one thing is that churches or denominations or church networks I think it's good for them to suggest or recommend to the people under their care safe and healthy uh, teachings, whether it's the teachers themselves or podcasts or books uh, or articles that would build up the faith of the people that they're caring for. That's really good. It's a good kind of first line of defense that the local church would say, hey, here's some healthy stuff. Read this. Check this out. But also individuals within the local churches, we actually need to be more discerning than we sometimes are when selecting the books or the podcasts or other materials that are going to direct the way that we live. And by the way we live, I mean direct things like the way we do decision-making or relationships or parenting or finances or our goals for our bodies, things like that. I've been shocked over the years to have conversations with Christians where it's like the Bible is the last 
thing that they're thinking of as they think about how to build and structure their lives. So we have to be a little more discerning about where we're turning for our help and information. But then also, I think individuals and churches should remember that the commission to love one another that John keeps giving us over and over again, it isn't his way of saying that we should be so extremely tolerant that we aren't judicious and discerning about the truth claims that are out there. In other words, we shouldn't be so extremely tolerant that no one's view is ever spoken of as incorrect or is wrong. We have to remember that an unwillingness to call a lie a lie is actually unloving. So uh, I think those are some applications from what John has given us here. Let's conclude the letter by looking at verse 12 and 13. We'll wrap it up today. He just closes the letter by saying, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So John just ends the letter by saying, you know, I have a lot more that I'd like to say, a lot more that I'd like to write, uh, but I don't want to do it in written form. I don't want to use pen and ink. I want to actually do it face to face. That's how I'd like to share with you. You see, John was not a writer first, but he was a pastor, apostle, a missionary. He loved people. He knew that great things happen when we're together. So even though he would write, he also knew that it was so good to just be together and minister together. And I can relate to this to like a real small degree because I've spent a lot of my time over the last, you know, 11 years that I've been able to be your pastor, I've, or 12 years now, I've spent a lot of time doing recording and writing where I'm by myself and I'm creating material that will come alongside of you in your walk with the Lord. But there are times, like we have this little studio upstairs in the church building, you know, it's like a little six by six room with a microphone in it and padded walls and stuff like that. And after a certain amount of time recording teachings in a room like that, it stops feeling like a studio and it sometimes feels more like a prison cell. (laughs) It's like, don't make me go back in that box to be by myself. This is honestly a little bit of the heart that I have for the Tuesday night gatherings because I know what's going to happen with those teachings. They'll be recorded, and over the years, they'll be listened to by lots of people. But, and I've just seen that already in the past. They'll be listened to by many more people in recorded version than in the live setting. But there's something beautiful that happens in the live setting for those who are able uh, to be there. So that's part of where I'm coming from with getting together on Tuesday nights, just being together as a church. But notice also that John ends the letter by just saying, hey, your elect sister greets you. I think this is his way of saying the church that he was in at the time when he wrote the letter, they were giving a greeting to the church that he was writing to. And what a cool way to think about other churches in our community or that we've been able to start or even on the other side of the world to think of them as sister churches that we care about, that we're praying for, that we're interested in. What a beautiful perspective to have. So, so before we take communion, I just want to give you some applications. I'll put them on the screen, and they're also online for you if you just want to grab them there. But one application of, I think, Second John is to love and pray for the local churches which comprise the local church. You know, just to be thinking about the elect lady or our, sisters in Christ, or our sister churches in Christ and to be praying for them. Number two, I think we should commit to reading through the Bible every day. 
this year. And this isn't like a legalistic thing, and I'm not even saying I wrote it in an awkward way. I didn't mean that you should commit to reading through the whole Bible this year, although that's a great aspiration if that's your desire. But just saying every day of my life this year, just a little bit of Scripture at least, want to get into the Bible. And the way you do that is you get a bookmark and you put it in there and, and you just keep moving forward. Uh, some people like to do like a shotgun thing, like let's see what happens today. You know, you're going to read some wild stuff if you do the Bible that way. Just get a bookmark. That's how you read books, you guys. You never get a novel and be like, what, what page? You know, just read it through. And number three, Think of a step or two you could take towards being with other believers more this year. You know, might be a small step or a large step, but we need each other. So maybe it's some guys you want to get together with and pray from time to time or church meeting you'd like to be a part of. But think about a step you could take, a conference to go to to be with other believers more. Number four, let the modern definition of tolerance, which I don't even think it's tolerance, it's just this extreme thing where you can't even think anymore. Uh, Let that modern definition of tolerance be replaced with biblical love. And then number five, I think this is important, reflect on which books, articles, podcasts, or other forms of teaching have most shaped your life. So just think about the way you do relationships, marriage, finances, parenting, physical goals, Think about those things and think about where, what went in to develop your view of how those things should be done. A lot of it's going to come from your history, your upbringing. Uh, some of it will come just from the ideas and the images that have attached themselves to you over the years. But through going through this process, it might help you identify some things that, ha- that you have built as a paradigm for life that are actually not scriptural or biblical, but have attached to you from some other angle. And so it'd be good to know where did those things come from? Why do I see it this way? And then lastly, I just wanted to say this, you know, we're loving other churches and everything. Let's pray for Refuge Salinas. We sent Matt Gersandi, Pastor Matt Gersandi out, I don't know, four years ago or so to plant a church in Salinas, and it's going really good. And they're ready now to, they, they need a permanent place to meet. They're renting an elementary school on Sundays, but there are things that they need to do during the week that they can't do because they're renting a space. Um, so uh, he's got a couple leads, but we're going to pray right now and ask God to open a door for them to have a permanent place to be able to meet uh, week after week.